Welcome to this extra special double episode on UK fisheries and Brexit, sea spiracy and ocean optimism with Dr Bryce Stewart. Bryce is a senior lecturer at the University of York. He's also a marine ecologist and fisheries biologist with a huge involvement in assessing the effects of Brexit on UK fisheries. So who better to have on to discuss these really important issues with myself, Emily and my co-host Jimmy. So let's get stuck in. Hello and welcome to Dr. Bryce Stewart. Uh, We're really excited to have you talking with us today as both me and Jimmy are students of marine sciences here at the University of Exeter. We're both kind of chomping at the bit to have you on and discuss, you know, all these plethora of issues we have with the marine environment at the moment. So 2020 seemed to be a year where not much happened for the majority of us. However, for the Brexit deal and fisheries in particular, I think it was quite a big year. For you know people who may not know too much about the fisheries industry, what was the fisheries in the UK like before Brexit and what is it going to be like after? Why did it cause such a big commotion? Very good question. Thanks so much for inviting me here. It's a pleasure to talk to you guys. In terms of Brexit and fisheries, There's a lot of history behind why it became such a contentious issue. Fishing and seafood and all of that plays a really prominent role in British history and society. So think of the fact that fish and chips is the national dish, for example. The UK is an island nation. You know, whenever I think the furthest point from the sea is 70 miles or something like that, which in Australia, where I come from, is like you go to the shops 70 miles away. You know, it's nothing. (laughs) So... Um, So we have this connection to the sea here. There also was a fairly strong sort of feeling among the UK fishing industry that joining Europe and sort of becoming part of the common fisheries policy had been pretty disadvantageous for them, that they'd gotten a bad deal back in the 70s when things were first divided up and then consequently with things like relative stability, which is the way the quotas are divided up between the nations. And the fact that EU boats are able to come and fish within sort of six miles of the shore in a number of places around the UK as well. So there was this feeling of sort of getting an unfair deal and mismanagement as well from the EU mm-hmm. and the fact that decisions were being made in Brussels about what could happen off the coast of you know Sussex or wherever. And so there were all these feelings running high. The Brexit campaigners used fishing as a sort of test of Brexit, if you like. I mean, who can forget the flotilla on the Thames in June yeah, 2016, not. just before the vote? You know, that hit international headlines. And even though fishing represents only a very small part of the economy, it's about 0.12%, even if you combine catching and processing, it really shot up the list of issues. Why it became problematic was the fact that we export most of what we catch here in the UK to Europe. So it's something around 50 to 60% of all the catch from British boats goes to the EU. So that's a huge market. For some species, it's even more than that. For certain shellfish, it can be 85, 90% for live lobsters and scallops and things. 
So we really relied on that trading arrangement and the EU knew that. And so they said, okay, if you want to be able to trade freely with us, then we don't want any of the ways that catching opportunities and access are arranged at the moment to change. So we had this huge stalemate. We had big expectations of change in the UK fishing industry, but the EU saying, no, <laughs> we yeah. don't want to change. <laughs> so there was this huge difference between the two sides and they were at loggerheads really until the last minute. So this Fishing for Leave campaign was such a big thing for the Brexit and they were really pushed it. Have the fishers gotten what they wanted out of this Brexit deal? Yeah, so I think the, the fundamental answer to that is no, not, not, not even close. <laughs> There's a huge amount of dissatisfaction and disappointment from the British fishing industry. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The government has tried to sell it as a win. And they've said, we've taken back control of our seas. And we're going to be able to catch all these extra fish. But neither of those things is really true. Yes, there is a bit more control over fishing in UK waters. Absolutely. We now have a piece of legislation called the Fisheries Act, and that is going to govern fisheries management instead of the common fisheries policy. And there has been an increase in quota for some species. And this is going to be over five years, a 25% increase in the amount of fish that's caught by UK boats that was caught by EU boats. But actually, when you do all the sums, that's only about a 10% overall increase for the British fishing industry across the board. The other thing about that 10% increase is most of it is only in a couple of fisheries. So particularly, say, Western mackerel, which is a large fishery offshore that's taken by mostly by large offshore boats that are already doing pretty well and were before Brexit as well. That represents 40% of that entire increase. And most of the other increases as well go to these offshore fisheries. So the small boats, which make up the majority of the fleet, something like 77% of the UK fleet is under 10 metres. Mm-hmm. They've got almost nothing from this Brexit deal. Oh, wow. But what they have got instead is the fact that the EU boats are still allowed to fish between the 12 and 6 mile zone off the English coast. And this was something they were promised would not happen. That was going to be a red line that the UK would not back down on, but they did. And then, of course, although we have tariff-free trade with the EU, so, you know, there was a threat at one point of up to, well, over 20% tariffs being put on some species. That's been avoided because of the deal. But there's a lot of what they call non-tariff barriers. So these are basically extra checks and paperwork and regulations that you now have to go through if you want to export your seafood to Europe. And that's slowed down trade, which is really a problem for fresh seafood, but it's also added to the cost. So, you know, you've got to employ people who know how to fill in all these forms. You've got to get vets to sort of approve your consignments going to Europe and all of this. So it's really complicated things. And as a result, there's been quite a significant decrease in the amount of seafood that's been exported. Wow. So... If the UK fishers maybe aren't benefiting from this, are the EU fishers? Well, no, they're not really, because I guess for the EU, the only way was down for them. So, you know, they (laughs) wanted to maintain status quo. They've been able to do that in a number of areas, but they have lost some quota. 
but they are still allowed, as I said, into these nearshore areas. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of species, the quota hasn't changed. So probably for many EU vessels, there hasn't really been a change. So it's not a big deal for them. But there'll be be some fisheries, some boats, I believe particularly the Irish fishing industry, are not really happy about the deal. And that's, again, links to this Western mackerel fishery, because that's a fishery between really that's situated between Scotland and Ireland. And so it's affecting the boats who fish in that area. So are we allowed to fish in EU countries, six to 12 nautical mile limits like they can with ours? Yeah, that's a good question. So in theory, there's a couple of tiny areas where that can happen. But talking to fishermen about this, they say they those areas are really of very limited use to them and they don't fish them. So it does still seem to be like a fairly unbalanced deal in that respect. I was surprised, you know, I really thought the UK would at least be able to get an exclusive 12 mile zone around its coast. That didn't seem like too much to ask for. And I think to those small boats, those under 10 meter boats, that would have made a really big difference. But now they're competing in the same waters for those fish with EU boats. So, you know, at the moment, really, the small vessels have overall lost out because they've had so few gains. But now trade is become more difficult. So they're seeing prices drop and just the demand for their products drop as well. So you mentioned the new fisheries bill that's been passed in the UK. The fisheries act, yes. So what's the difference between that and the common fisheries policy, like the EU policy that's been in place for the last decade that's done quite well in repopulating a lot of these fish stocks? And do EU boats have to abide by that when they're in our waters? The answer to those questions is it's kind of similar, but obviously the decisions are controlled by the EU. And in fact, there's a lot of devolution as well of the way that it will be implemented. So there has to be consistency between the devolved nations, but they are allowed to set their own management measures to an extent as well. But yeah, there's a lot of similarities in terms of the headline objectives of the Fisheries Act and the Common Fisheries Policy. And there's going to have to be a lot of cooperation as well between the two bits of legislation, because over 100 of the fish stocks that are taken commercially are actually shared between the UK and the EU. So that means they're effectively the distribution of those stocks crosses the border between the two areas. So we have to cooperate with them. And if we don't, then if the UK says, well, we want to be able to catch more quota of cod or whatever it is, and they unilaterally increase their quota, if the EU then doesn't back down accordingly, then you end up with everyone catching too much, and then the Mm -hmm. stock gets overfished, and ultimately everybody loses out. So I'm encouraged by where things are at the moment, that there's You know, there's a lot in there to make sure this cooperation happens. There's a lot of alignment between the two bits of legislation. There are some advantages to the UK, particularly if we think about the management of marine protected areas. One of the things that's held that back for the last few decades, to be honest, is the fact that if you had a marine protected area that was in the offshore area of the UKC, so this means outside of 12 miles, but still in UK waters, because it was managed as a single European exclusive economic zone, if you wanted to put in a conservation measure, like restricting bottom trawling in an MPA, for example, all the countries had to agree 
and getting everyone to agree about something is quite difficult. Now the UK can actually just say, right, this MPA is in our waters. We are going to ban bottom trawling in it. And they're allowed to do that as long as it's not discriminatory. So what that means is they couldn't, for example, say, well, we're going to let UK vessels bottom trawl, but we're going to ban all the EU ones. They're not allowed to do that. Same rule has to apply to everyone, but they can be more progressive with marine conservation. And they're already proposing to do this in four MPAs, including Dogger Bank, which is in the North Sea, and it's a particularly interesting one. Yeah, that actually leads us quite nicely into the next question, which oh, was, good, good. I mean, it made it made uh, headlines last year, Greenpeace dropping their boulders in the dog bank, which I'm not sure on the actual effectiveness on stopping bottom trawling, because I think a lot of the boulders were dumped back on shore by fishermen, but it made headlines and made people aware that some of these protected areas still have destructive fishing methods in. So from someone who's in the, the area of fishery science and management, what do you think of actions like these and what do you see the future of enforcement looking like of protected areas? Yeah, I mean, I am not a huge fan of that sort of direct action. I think it's questionable as to whether or not it was legal. Uh, you know, I remember speaking to some people from Greenpeace years ago and about this sort of stuff. It was a different thing in those days. But um, and them just saying, oh, look, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelette. That's how they operate. You know, they draw attention to issues. And I guess for them, what was probably more important than actually stopping fishing was to get that story into the headlines. And potentially the move by the UK government to put out a consultation saying we're going to protect Dogger Bank now is partly at least because of the action by Greenpeace. You know, they really shone a light on it. But no, I'm not a fan... (laughs) It's just not my style. You know, as I said, it's possibly illegal. It potentially could endanger the lives of fishermen. If you get one of those boulders caught in your nets when you're trawling, it's extremely dangerous. I've been on a boat when this happens. And if it was in a rough sea, like the whole boat basically slews to one side. You have to react very quickly to let out extra warp, which is the cable basically towing the nets. Or you could easily, if the sea was rough, the boat could get swamped. And so we shouldn't be doing anything that might potentially endanger people. But at the same time, you know, it's right to sort of shine a light on the fact that although we have a huge amount of now of MPAs around the UK, so I think the coverage is 37 or 38% of, of waters, the amount of those that are no take or no fishing is less than 0.1 of a percent. So, you know, most of them don't do anything, basically. Exactly, because you don't get the benefits of spillover or larval export from MPAs, right? No, you know, clues in the name. It's meant to be a marine protected area. And there was a great campaign run in Scotland a few years ago called Don't Take the P Out of MPAs. Otherwise, they're just marine areas. They don't actually provide any protection. What protection you provide depends on the objectives of the site. And if it's maybe for pelagic species, maybe it's for cetaceans or seals or something like this, then maybe it's appropriate to still allow bottom trawling. You know, it depends on what's on the seabed and all the rest of it. But if you are actually trying to recover the seabed, benthic communities, and you're still allowing bottom trawling or, or scallop dredging, then it doesn't really make any sense. Those areas are not going to recover. But would you say that 
maybe the reason we have very little reserves or no take zones is partly because of the EU with voting, for example, where every country has to agree to it. Or, I mean, I personally see MPAs like in the UK as almost a bit blue washy as, oh, these are great protectors and everyone look at this. But as you were saying, it doesn't really have the benefits of a no take area. Yeah, I mean, the answer is yes, but you need to look at the details. That's certainly been the case for these offshore MPAs. So as I said, outside of 12 miles, but inshore, there are lots of other MPAs. Most of them are inshore. The reason they are not no take, they don't all have to be no take. You know, we're looking for a sort of balancing fisheries and conservation here, but it's really a lack of government will power and action. And, you know, even going right back to the implementation of the Marine Act, which started in 2010, and when the network of marine conservation zones around England were being put in, there were these things called reference areas, which were meant to be no-take areas. There was quite a lot of agreement in the first few years that these things should be put in place. Then when the designs came out, they were tiny and there didn't seem to be a lot of logic behind where they were placed. And so instead of going, okay, we need to go back to the drawing board and do this properly, the decision was, well, we'll just get rid of them altogether. And so and so we have this situation now. Like I totally agree, it's blue washing. The government is leading this global drive for 30 by 30, so protecting 30% of the world's oceans by 2030. And the UK government sees itself as a global leader in that. And it says, well, look, we've already protected 38% of our waters, but the reality is completely different. And I think the average person's not really aware of that. You know, they're just going to see the headlines and think, okay, everything's cool. Like, you know, the government's doing a good job, but it's really not. Do you think yeah. there needs to be a change in the vocabulary that's used? Because by having the word protected in MPA, people think that it should be no take and there shouldn't be any fishing. But in these areas, you can't you can't have them where they're all no take. We need to have fishing somewhere sure. and we need to regulate that fishing because otherwise we're going to push it to areas which aren't protected in any sense. And, you know, they're going to be completely decimated by fishing because we're just pushing the pressure elsewhere. Mm. So maybe do we need to change the vocabulary to reflect what the area is actually doing? So maybe it's just a managed area. It's not protected in the sense of no fishing, no activities, but it's protected from overfishing and destructive activities. Yeah, I mean, that would probably make more sense, wouldn't it? To have uh, maybe managed areas and then marine reserves would be the actual highly protected areas. I mean, you could... Yeah, you can fiddle around with the vocabulary, but this sort of phrase of just calling everything an MPA means that you can hide what's really going on. The English government last year did a an inquiry, if you like, into the use of highly protected marine areas. So these are effectively no-take zones. It was chaired by the former fisheries minister, Richard Bennion, and they produced this really nice report and they said, we need more of these, but as far as I know, nothing's happened. They're still dragging their feet on it. And at the moment, the distinction is marine protected areas and then highly protected marine areas. And it's a bit of a mouthful. So if we could we could simplify things and get the message across more clearly. Absolutely. I think we need like global cooperation in that, because, for example, like in New Zealand, they have a lot of their protected areas and marine reserves, but then they also have in Kaikoura, something called a marine mammal sanctuary. And when I was researching into this, 
all I could find was that in this area, you there was you weren't allowed to use sonar. First off, you were never allowed to drill for hydrocarbons, and there was a quota on the number of marine mammals you were allowed to get from bycatch. But nowhere in the legislation could I find what that quota was, and they okay. were boasting about this marine mammal sanctuary. Yet, really, the protection was a very small marine reserve on the edge of the Kaikoura Canyon. But the marine yeah. mammal sanctuary itself spread over a, a large distance. But just that's just an example that different language in different nations. Yeah, there are lots of examples. I mean, some of the special areas of conservation, for example, around the UK for like harbour porpoise, and they're vast, you know. Mm. But what do they actually mean? <laughs> Not much. It's the honest answer. So we do need to sort that out. And the, the problem is that if they're all, like we've said, is they're all just called MPAs and they all get lumped together. This is why I have a bit of a problem with the, the 30 by 30 campaign, because it just means that governments will just rush ahead and they'll either designate areas that don't mean very much or, you know, in the UK's case, they've done a lot of designating big areas in the overseas territories. Yeah. And that yeah, doesn't necessarily agree. deliver benefits where they're needed. I'm not against them doing that, but if they use that to make themselves look good overall, they're kind of misleading us a bit. But that's politicians, right? <laughs> 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 On that point, were you talking about it earlier, so I think it links quite well and it's very topical at the moment. I just wanted to get your thoughts on the whole Jersey situation that's been going on. I mean, as my understanding of it is that Jersey... It's in the British Isles, but it's their own island nation. And our Brexit fisheries agreements wasn't included in Jersey. They have their own mm. legislation. So when they've denied these 17 boats, I think it was their licenses to carry on fishing. And you see this uh, yeah, flotilla coming and blockading the harbour. And then we send the Navy in and they send some police boats in. Do you think this aggression is the first of many? Do you think this is something we're likely to see in the future? And how does this get solved? Because for me, sending in the Navy very quickly like that as an act of force, that isn't a good way to solve something like that. Um, not, not at all, basically. <laughs> no, it was pretty outrageous. Unfortunately, so too was the, the threat from the French minister to say they're going to cut off the electricity to Jersey. Of course. It was totally out of proportion on both sides. And, you know, the people involved, commentators on it have said, look, we could actually solve this by sitting around the table together. The issue, from what I understand, is those 17 boats weren't able to really demonstrate their track record with the, the type of data that was being looked for by the Jersey authorities. But maybe there's other ways they could have done that. And given a bit of time, the situation may well have been solved so a good example of this is with the so-called scallop wars about three years ago now in the channel. I mean, it's happened a number of times. It's a disagreement over basically where scallop boats are fishing between France and England. Yeah, and that also got very heated at sea and people were throwing rocks and insults at each other. But then they did move on from there and sit around the table and work out a compromise and it was solved peacefully and fairly amicably. And and I've even been in meetings with those same British and French fishermen and seen them having beers together and getting on well. You know, fishermen have a lot of connection with each other, regardless of what country they're from. It's a tough life. 
and they tend to be similar types of personalities that are drawn to it. And so in a lot of cases, there's a lot of respect and they will sympathize with each other's plight and they'll, they'll try and work something out. I mean, in that Jersey case, I even heard that some of the people in the protest were Jersey fishermen because they actually were supporting their French colleagues because they've worked together for decades quite peacefully. Also, again, as is the case with the UK as a whole, Jersey relies on exporting its catch to France. And so anything that was going to threaten that was a huge problem. It's all very well having the right to catch the fish, but if you can't sell it, well, there's no real point, is there? You're not going to make any money. You're not going to have a livelihood. So that was really unfortunate. I, you know, I hope it won't happen again, but undoubtedly there will be situations like that that rear up, you know, and this is only going to get worse in terms of disagreements over where fish are and who has the right to catch them. If you think about the effects of climate change on the distribution of fish stocks, we already know it's having a huge effect around our shores. The North Sea is one of the so-called ocean warming hotspots. So it's warming up faster than the global average. And that means that fish stocks in there are moving around more than average. And so, you, you know, you have a situation now where the way that the quotas are divided up in many cases doesn't actually represent where the fish are anymore. Maybe it did 40 years ago, 30 years ago, but now it doesn't. You know, things are moving. It's just, it's such a difficult subject, which just seems to be changing constantly. I don't know how it's going to change in the future, but I'm, I know for myself and I'm sure, Jimmy, we're very, you know, looking forward to seeing how it is going to change and if we can play a part in hopefully solving the issues. Exactly. Be part of the solution, guys. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> well, that concludes the first half of this special double episode with Dr. Bryce Stewart. If you're hungry for more, you can listen to the second half diving into the sea spiracy deep and surfacing for some much needed ocean optimism. Find this and all other episodes of the Natural Selection podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify and iTunes.